the sleeper in the bus. There's skill, there's luck. A keeper or cut. Open file, a case shut. A short stop or stop short. Press play or press abort. Intelligence for sports. Good of y'all to listen. Aiming at what truth is. Mike and Eno pitching like the name is Michael Lewis. Others in the dust or left out to rust. Who's hitting? Who's missing? The sleeper in the bus. The sleeper in the bus. Hello out there in Fantasyland, and welcome to The Sleeper and the Bust. I'm Mike Podhorzer, and I'm joined today by Rotographs editor Eno Saris, and we'll be discussing the Rangers' short-term future, as well as recapping some of my preseason bold predictions. And we're going to start things off with the return of the most interesting player alive, and that is David Price, who was quite the pitcher after returning from that strange biceps injury. And I was concerned about that. I wasn't a David Price owner, but there was an opportunity, I think, maybe to buy low. He got off to a bit of a slow start. ERA was over four. But I was scared off by that biceps injury, and that clearly had no effect on him whatsoever. Were you surprised at how well he pitched after coming back from that injury? Yeah, I mean... um... I guess I, you know, he's like one of these. He's he's just a a guy I don't understand in general. You know, like um, he uh, he has the stuff to be, uh, you know, sort of no doubt ace. And for to, for me to even to question that, I think uh, would make make some people sort of rise because had you know uh, he has like a, a a three ERA for his career, great whip, you know, eight strikeouts per nine. But there's still something that leaves me cold when I look at his line. Um, and, um, you know, he, he's basically never had a, a great swing strike rate. Um, and he's only once really had a great ground ball rate. And, um, you know, these are the kind of things that I look for, you know, for, for my aces. And it's kind of weird that he doesn't have either of them. Yeah, and the swinging strike rate since 2010, it's actually declined every single year. Plus, his velocity was down two miles an hour on average this year as well on the fastball. So, I mean, there are all kinds of red flags. But when you watch the guy pitch, he's another another one of those guys who throws really hard. And you wonder, how is he not generating more swinging strikes and strikeouts than he has? Yeah, and, and uh, you know, one of the... One of the things that I uh, noticed when I was looking through his stuff is, um, and you can kind of notice when he when he throws too, is that he, he throws the two seamer way more than he throws the four seamer. And um, if you look at the sort of underlying rates, um, the four seamer is actually one of his best uh, whiff pitches. You know, when it's uh, compared to the the baseline for those types of pitches. So uh, in terms of getting whiffs, the four seamer is maybe his best pitch. Um, other than his changeup, and um, uh, you know that uh, that to me says that um, you know he likes throwing the two seamer for ground balls, but he's not getting as many whiffs because he's throwing the two seamer so often. Which I'm okay with a lot of that, but then why is his uh, career ground ball rate just barely above average? And you know that two seamer actually. I'm looking at his pitch FX tables. And the two-seamer ground ball rate is only 45%, which is basically what his season line is with every pitch. And and 45%, that's not a ground ball pitch. That's pretty much league average. So, And for for a two-seamer, it's uh, 
That's below average. Yeah, that's low. So it doesn't really generate a whole lot of swinging strikes or ground balls. So, I mean, that's basically screams to me pitch to contact. And why would a pitcher like David Price, who throws in the mid-90s, have any pitch to contact pitches? I don't understand. Yeah, it's, it's a little strange. And, uh, and, but yet, you know, when you talk to players like Adrian Gonzalez, I asked him, you know, if you had to have one pitcher to, to win a game with, he said David Price. And I said, is that, the same, is that the same answer for nastiest pitcher you face? And he's, he's like, yeah, he's up there. Because, you know, when you, when you watch it, like what we're saying, when you watch him, it looks great. So, I, you know, the only thing that makes me worried is that, you know, you know as the velocity starts to, starts to go down, as it does with every pitcher in age, um, if he doesn't get like a corresponding additional movement on his two-seamer, because there is some sort of relationship between velocity and, and movement. So, you know, he could get a little bit more movement on the two-seamer, maybe get a little bit more um, ground balls with a lower velocity. But if he doesn't, then I think he's going to become more and more hittable. And this year, his strikeout rate was 7 per 9. Um, so it's not great. But you know what? Let's not take away anything from him because – with his skills package this year, his Sierra was still at 343, which is still one of the better marks that you would hope for as an American League pitcher. And I, I hate talking about that whole cliche how you know he's become a pitcher, not a thrower. Obviously, David Price has never had that problem. He's never had bad control. He's always had good control. But his strikeout rate drop this year also corresponded to a huge spike in first strike percentage. He went from generally in the low 60% range to nearly 68%, which I, you know, I don't have the league leaders up, but it probably would be close to the league leaders. So it's possible that he did consciously make the decision that he's going to pitch a little more to contact and just attack the strike zone and just throw a ton of strikes and at the expense of strikeouts. And now maybe also he realizes that his velocity is down and that's what he decided to do. And, and that – didn't hurt him at all this year. Yeah, well, you know, one thing that's nice for him is that he pitches in a in a bit of a pitcher's park. So uh, his home run per fly ball rate is nine, whereas sort of the the league average is closer to ten. You know, he he gives up uh, you know fewer than a home run per game. It doesn't really ever get close um, ever since his rookie season. So um, <clears throat> he'll continue to be good, but you know, with the, bi- the bicep. And, you know, the lower swinging strike rates and the sort of average ground ball rates. And the velocity and decline. The velocity decline. I don't think I'm going to pick him uh, in the top 12 pitchers next year. Right. So he's probably one of those hitting, those guys that are perceived as aces that have some maybe hidden flaws that you're not willing to pay full price on. Clayton Kershaw is probably somebody you're willing to pay full price because there's really no warts. I mean, obviously, you're not going to expect another sub-2 ERA, but there's nothing really that screams, uh-oh, red flag, whereas David Price, there are some red flags that might not be so obvious on the surface. Yeah, but uh, still an awesome pitcher, and I hate, I'd hate for you know a race fan to be yelling at the radio right now. I mean, he's obviously a great pitcher, and when we're you know in fantasy, we're, we're talking about... Um, you know, really trying to when you're talking about your first pitcher that you're picking, you really want you want to have no question marks, pretty much. Right. Let's move along to the Rays opponent last night. That's the Rangers, and they're going to have a very interesting offseason. I mean, they have a top prospect in Jerickson Profar that was a bit disappointing this year, 
Uh, he didn't exactly get regular playing time, so that must have been tough. They have to make room for him. You'd think they would have to make room for him. They have a whole bunch of free agent, Nelson Cruz, who had been their right fielder, David Murphy, their left fielder, their first baseman, Mitch Moreland, their catcher, A.J. Przinsky, uh, Matt Garza, who they acquired midseason from the Cubs. So they got a lot of positions that they have to be concerned about either resigning these guys or replacing from free agency, and then also what to do with Profar. And Profar played all over the place this year. He started at second base, shortstop, third base, and left field. But you have to assume that they think his future is at second base. So what happens or, here? Or shortstop. I mean, you know, when I looked at the uh, at the overall numbers for the year, just trying to uh, trying to see what their priority would be in the offseason, I was surprised to find that the, the Rangers um, scored the seventh most runs in the AL, which is... Uh, by definition, mediocre or average. And that was uh, in a hitter's park, so that was disappointing. That's in a hitter's park, and uh, <clears throat> and they they actually did better on the run prevention side, uh, having uh, given up the third least um, number of runs in the American League. So, um, give, especially given their park, it seems like in some ways their pitching is ahead of their hitting. Then again, if you look at the last 30 days, which basically is the Alex Rios era, um, and no Nelson Cruz, but they're going to lose Nelson Cruz. So if you look at the Alex Rios era, uh, the Rangers were fifth in um, the American League in, in runs. So a little bit closer. But, you know, I think that it's not out of the realm of possibility that they look at this team and say, let's, let's spend some energy and some time and some money and perhaps some trade chips on the offensive side of the, of the park um, and you know, of the team. So... You know, if you look at potential places for them to upgrade, it's the uh, corner outfield uh, where Hunter Pence is taken off the market, and <clears throat> the best other choices are Shinsu Chu, and um, you know, I don't know, Corey Hart could could fit in at first base. They could upgrade at first base, perhaps. Uh, Mitch Moreland can play a little outfield. So the you know, but th- that's about it in terms of maybe power. And so what they're looking at, I think the big question will be Giancarlo Stanton. And they're one of the few teams that has the kind of um, farm system that they could actually put something together for for Stanton. And the the Marlins, in particular, um, had the worst uh, player in baseball at shortstop last year um, in uh, Hecuberia. So... (laughs) You know, you know, a package built around Profar, or even around Andrews, uh, might be appealing to them. And you know that as fantasy players, I just wanted to bring this up because it it would be so enticing on so many different levels. A full time role for Profar, um, you know, Giancarlo Stanton in Texas, um, you know, all the you know, if Martin Perez goes to Florida, that would be exciting. So, you know, different the the, the different prospects going back and forth on this one would be really exciting. And uh, would make a big difference for fans. And yet, it's still this guy, and it's virtually impossible for us to, to, to say any of that's going to happen, and so bet on that in any way. Well, I'm already salivating at the idea of writing an article uh, about Stanton moving into Texas and looking at the park factors, because, I mean, that's going from one extreme to the other extreme. And that's something that gets fantasy owners excited. It's like a, a hitter moving to Coors Field, and everybody gets all excited about what that hitter could possibly do. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> it's definitely definitely exciting. And I think that I think that the Rangers um, of all the teams that were in the mix this year, I think that they kind of 
I think they might have the most impetus to make uh, sort of drastic changes. Um, I, I think that they might be able to, um, I think they might kind of feel like after two years of, of late season fades and I'd say more modest uh, trade deadline moves and more modest, you know, free, free agency uh, decisions other than you Darvish. Uh, but that, you know, that, that sort of predates the period I'm talking about. So, um, <clears throat> I think they will. I think they will uh, be very motivated this offseason. And the speculation early in the season and the preseason was maybe the Rangers would move Ian Kinsler to first base to open up second base from Profar, but Kinsler is fine defensively at second, and he isn't really good enough anymore offensively to produce good value at first base. So I don't really see why this would be a move that the Rangers would want to make. Plus. Yeah, it's a, it's a tiny sample, but Profar's UZR 150 at second base this year was negative 7.1, which is worse than Kinsler. But I did, I did think that Profar was supposed to be good defensively. I, I can't remember, though. Did he come up? Was he a shortstop in the minors or second base? Who? Profar. You don't remember that? Yeah, he's a shortstop, and he's supposed to be a shortstop, and yeah, well, he's supposed, to, supposed yeah. to stick at it. So, so what, what's going to happen with Andrews? Because Andrews is signed for forever on the Rangers. Yeah, and that probably makes him less attractive to um, to the Marlins. But you know, he isn't signed at a, a huge deal, and it, you know, it may still work out. But um, you know, I think that uh, Profar, a little bit of Profar's talents are wasted at second, but uh, not a ton. I mean, it's still it's still a defensive position, um, and and but yeah, they're they're still stuck. So they, it could just be another year. Of Profar, uh, you know, helping around the diamond and, and, and Kinsler at second because I think they still have Kinsler for one more year. But um, um, yeah, definitely. I just, I just, I wanted to talk about it a little bit because I think that you know the Rays uh, work around the edges a lot unless they do the big uh, David Price trade this off season. Um, and uh, you know. The Red Sox, I think, will will probably just you know pay you know buy a little bit, and the Athletics, I think, are always a a, a wild card in terms of which pitcher they'll they'll trade. Uh, but I think the Rangers might might uh, be feeling it the most, you know. Yeah, I I just feel like it would be silly to use Profar in a similar super utility type role next year like they did this year. I mean, they have a, a bunch of obvious holes offensively that they really need to fill. And I think that it probably would make sense for them to make some sort of a trade or some sort of a, a move defensively to open up uh, a space for him. And I, I feel like Profar is going to be a starter at some position on some team next year coming out of spring training. Yeah, and if you're, not, if you're only going to use him as a utility player, then sign a utility player for a million dollars. And and use Profar to get somebody who has more stick, um, you know, because you're you're hurting a little bit in in left field and first base, which are, are you know are, are power positions. And catcher too, they have no catcher if they don't resign Krasinski. He's a free agent too. Right. Well, that, you know, that's not as important sort of offensively, but you know, and it's it's interesting because the the Rays have done something similar where they're like, okay. We're just gonna seed first base. We're you know we're gonna have you know we're gonna have whatever Flotsam and Jetsam is out there. We're just gonna put him at first base, and and uh, all the rest of y'all can have can have sluggers at first base. So I mean the Rangers are, are doing that too, but it hasn't been as successful. 
All right, let's move along to perhaps the strangest no-hitter that's happened since I've been following baseball. And that's Henderson Alvarez, who shockingly no-hit the Tigers. Obviously, you know, it wasn't exactly their A-plus lineup, but it happened. It was a bunch of major leaguers. Um, did you watch the end of the game, and or did you see highlights? No, I, I just saw some highlights. So what are you talking about? So Henderson Alvarez pitched nine no-hit innings, but the, it was tied. It was 0-0. So he had to basically wait on the bench to see if they scored in the bottom of the ninth inning to see if it would officially be recognized as a no-hitter. And he ended up being in the on-deck circle when the game-winning hit was made. And so he celebrated when his team was hitting, which was crazy. And if the team didn't score, he would have been trotted out to pitch the 10th inning. <laughs> it was just a nutsy. So, I mean, that was probably the nutty, most nutty part of it. But also, he only got, struck out four batters. I mean, usually no hitters it's because you strike out a lot of batters. And, and you don't require that many great defensive plays. And there's just not that many balls put into play. But... Only striking out four, it's pretty shocking that they couldn't get one hit, one ball to fall in with that many balls in play. Yeah, and it's not, you know, it's not the best defense in the world. Although, if Hegeveria has one thing going for him, supposedly it's defense. So, um, I, uh, I, I don't think it's, I don't, you know, I, I, I streamed him like five times <laughs> so uh i was pretty excited about that uh about that that performance but um you know i i he's one of those guys where i'm like damn this guy throws 95 it's a pretty wicked sinker um and i i think he's gonna have some you know 58 59 60 percent ball rates in his future he already has one sort of like that in his past um but, uh, you know, I still think that he could do better. You know, I think he could strike out people and have all this. I mean, yeah, he throws a sinker 56% of the time. But, um, you know, his uh, slider and his changeup and his cutter, they all get decent whiffs. I mean, we're not talking, like, really terrible whiff rates. So um, maybe he'll throw those a little more. You know, I, I, I've heard the change is not very good. But looking at it right now, it looks like it could be good enough it gets about half ground balls and gets a 13 percent whiffs you know typical changeup gets 15 percent whiffs so i feel like um you know the nl is going to be good to him and uh i think i'll probably own him on some teams next year particularly in head-to-head where i can supplement his lack of strikeouts perhaps with a streamer or an extra uh, position dedicated to a starting pitcher He's not all that different than Willie Peralta, who's another guy that I know that you've tweeted about, that you watch him pitch. He throws in the mid to high 90s, and it looks like he has good stuff, but the swinging strike rate and the strikeout rate just don't match that outwardly good stuff. And the issue is is that both of them throw fastballs nearly 70% of the time, supplement it with the slider, but when you throw the fastball that often, usually you're not going to get a whole lot of strikeouts because that's the pitch that induces the lowest swinging strike rate and, and the fewest strikeouts. So you think that there's a lot of hidden upside in the strikeout department for Henderson Alvarez. It would just probably come at the expense of ground balls. He'd, pro- he'd probably make the trade-off either ground balls or strikeouts. And I think strikeouts are probably better than a ground ball because a ground ball is a ball in play that can go for a hit. So I think there's some hidden upside here, especially in the National League, if he changes up his pitch mix a little bit. 
And and we can see a, a, a six-plus strikeout rate, which would make him possibly ownable in even a shallower mixed league because the whole skills package could, in a pitcher's park, potentially lead to a sub-four ERA. Legit, yeah, I think some four year, right? Yeah, I think he can. Uh, I think he can do a little. I can. I mean, I think his floor. I not not floor because he had a pretty good year. But I think what what he did this year is a reasonable projection for next year. Uh, Mid threes, huh? On the upside. Well, I, I would say that the upside is is mostly in the strikeout category. Otherwise, if he did what he did this year again then I would own him in head-to-head leagues because I think he would be a good guy for sort of uh, race and ratio. He would be a good guy for ERA and whip, if not necessarily your strikeout rate. But in, in head-to-head, you can do something where if you're falling behind strikeouts, you stream a guy, or you just dedicate an extra roster slot to a starting pitcher as opposed to a bench hitter or a reliever. And there you get more strikeouts from quantity instead of uh, having a bunch of guys with High strikeout rates. He's a pretty darn good example of how much luck is involved in the home run per fly ball rate. So get this. Last year, in 187 and a third innings, he gave up 29 home runs for an 18% home run per fly ball. This year, in 102 innings, he only allowed two home runs for a 2.6% home run per fly ball ratio. Have you ever seen a pitcher over that many innings go from one extreme to the other extreme quite like Henderson Alvarez did this year? Uh, <laughs> the that's uh, that's pretty on. intense, actually. <laughs> I mean, it's like a, almost ten times reversal. But um, no, I, I can't think of one off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm sure a little bit of that had to do with moving out of Toronto and the American League into the National League in Miami. But obviously, that's not going to explain the majority of that change. I mean, that swing is bad luck last year, good luck this year. I mean, obviously, that can't continue. I mean, two home runs in 100 innings is crazy. I mean, right, right. I so, mean, so he's more likely to um, maybe triple that. <laughs> so uh, that's um, so that would be uh, 12 home runs next year, or six home runs in 100 innings. Um, probably is not that big a deal if they're solo homers. I mean, he has good, he has good command and control. So maybe maybe a 3.75 ERA, a 1.2 WHIP, five strikeouts per nine. It's very borderline, but I do I do like him a little bit more in head-to-head, like I said. Yeah, I think the fact that he did finish the season with a 3.59 ERA, he now has that no-hitter on his resume. I think that'll give him a bit of a look. He might even be nabbed as a sleeper in some magazines, so I think it does raise his price a bit, and he's not just going to be a free agent at the end of every single draft. And, and so that kind of... Is annoying. His price is going to increase, but I, I think he does have some very deep um, sleeper potential and some strikeout rate upside. All right, let's talk about some bold predictions that we made in the preseason, and and this episode we'll talk about a couple of mine. Maybe, perhaps, in another episode we'll talk about some of yours. So first off, I predicted that Alex Cobb earns the most fantasy value among raised starters not named David Price. And, and and really the one guy I was thinking that he would be better than was Matt Moore. But Matt Moore had uh, amazing run support and got a whole bunch of wins. So that basically guaranteed that he was going to out-earn Alex Cobb, even though by all accounts and by all metrics, Alex Cobb actually was the better pitcher this year. 
So what do we expect now for an encore? Because, I mean, even the biggest supporters of Alex Cobb couldn't possibly have imagined he would post a sub-3 ERA. No, I... uh... I did. I claimed Alex Cobb as a as a as a uh, bold prediction of my own, as well. So um, uh, I did. I did like him, uh, but I, you know, I was I was as an analyst I was uh, I was saying like you know there will be somebody like Alex Cobb that will like um, and and but you know I also was worried about the fact that his fastball is sort of eighty nine ninety and not super exciting. But now that I've seen him a couple times, I sort of get it. It's it's a great changeup. And um, it's really good command paired with a great changeup. So he he can place the fastball where he needs to put it, and then uh, he kind of puts him away with the changeup. So um, I think it's a I think it's a, a package that can last a while. Um, and uh, you know it's two fastballs, and the curve is is pretty legit. So it's really it's one of these things where you know you can focus too much on the fastball and then forget that. He's got a legit, legit curve and a really great change, and uh, the, the fastballs are, are are placed well enough that it, it all works. You know, he's actually not too different than rotation mate Jeremy Hellickson. Both of them, fastball, curveball, changeup, and the changeup is the best pitch. But Alex Cobb is a ground balling version of Hellickson, which makes him all the more appealing, especially on a a raised defense that shifts a lot, and so the ground balls you don't have to worry about going for hits more often because they have that good defense. So, yeah, and I, that, you know, I think Cobb's curve is probably a little bit ahead of uh, Hellickson's other non-change-up pitches, so that, that's a bit of it. But um, And also, you know, I think that the, the their commands aren't necessarily, or, or maybe it's a pitching approach. I, I have seen some uh, analysis on Hellickson not establishing the inside corner with his fastball, and that's allowing uh, hitters to sort of cheat outside with the changeup and, and just look to pepper the opposite field with his changeup. And, um, you know, I don't think that Cobb had that problem because when I've watched him, he's been really great at putting that fastball exactly where he wants to put it. Now, I am a bit concerned about Cobb's actual ability to come anywhere close to a repeat. I mean, his swinging strike rate was essentially league average. And his first strike percentage was actually below the league average, making me think that maybe his walk rate is due to increase next year. And I'm checking out baseball reference now just to see what his looking strike rate. Yeah, I mean, this is what I figured. His looking strike rate is well above the league average. And and that's, you know, it is a skill. I'm just not as comfortable with a pitcher who relies on getting called strikes to maintain their strikeout rate as I am with a guy who induces swinging strikes. And David Price is similar, is that a lot of his strikeouts come because of the called strike rather than the swinging strike. And we saw what happened to him this year is that his strikeout rate did decline, and that's always something that's going to be in the back of my mind with somebody like Alex Cobb, somebody who doesn't generate a whole lot of whiffs and relies on dropping in a a called strike, which is weird because if you're a change-up guy, that's a swinging strike type pitch. So... Maybe it's yeah, but it, actually, if you look at it's funny is that if you look at the, those two categories that I that I pointed out for David Price, swinging strike rate and ground ball rate, um, Cobb hasn't beat. Uh, Cobb hasn't beat in. I, I'm not sure. I don't have prices up right now, but at least this year, 
had a, a much better swinging strike rate than Price and uh, has a career ground ball rate of 56%, which is a number that Price has only hit once in his career. So uh, that's that's kind of a funny little thing right there. I mean, no, I, I see obviously Alex Cobb. He's not going to post another sub-3 ERA without a whole lot of strand rate luck again. And so I, I wonder if... I don't actually think he's going to be overvalued because I think a lot of people – it was only over 143 innings. It's not like he threw 210 innings you know, because he had that scary concussion. But I feel like the knee-jerk reaction for the most part is that he's a bit of a fluke because, I mean, he obviously doesn't have much of a track record. Last year's ERA, 403. But I pretty much believe that he is a legit mid-three ERA guy and he is this good pitcher moving forward. So I, I don't think he's going to end up being overvalued next year. Yeah, and I think that uh, I haven't, you know, we haven't um, done our projections and, you know, actually lined everybody up. But I think that um, if he goes in that sort of fancy number three area, um, I might end up owning him again. Uh, I own him a couple times this year. I might end up owning him again a couple times next year, um, you know, picking him sort of to be um, one of my group of number one slash number twos by picking him maybe a little bit earlier than some people would for uh, to be a fancy number three to actually be my number two, you know. Um, because I, I, I think I, I'll, I might like him a little more than some people. Well, how will you compare him to Matt Moore next year? Who do you think will earn more fantasy value? I'd prefer Cobb, actually. Yeah, um, just be- you know, just because of not only um, – I, I think that Cobb is safer. The, the ground ball rate, the command, uh, those are the things I like. You know, Zimmerman found that command is also leads to better health. And, um, you know, Moore already had a, a health concern. So um, I think a lot of those – I think I would uh, probably project Cobb for a few more innings than Moore – and, um, you know, the, the walk rate, um, you know, Cobb might put up half the walk rate of, of Matt Moore. Yeah, too many red flags for me with Matt Moore. Velocity decline, his control has gotten worse this year. Fly ball pitcher, the strikeout rate isn't any better than Cobb's to begin with. And that's what you, the one category that you were pretty sure Moore would outperform Cobb in. So, really, I mean, Cobb is, is better in, in basically any metric that you look at. And he also didn't deal with the type of injury to his, I think it was an elbow injury that Matt Moore dealt with this year. That's a bit scary. So, yeah, so easily Cobb for me. But I have a feeling next year that Matt Moore is going to be drafted earlier and for a more expensive price in nearly every single league. All right, let's move along to a guy that I'm wondering. Are we done with Mike Moustakis? Both of us in the preseason had him included in our bold predictions. I went as bold as saying he would hit 30 home runs. You went with 25 home runs. He hit 12. <laughs> Are you done with him? Are we giving up? We should do our LVPs soon, our MVPs and LVPs, because he is he is a, a, a serious contender for my fantasy LVP of the year. I, I just can't, you know... Uh, you know, no, no player. I, I sort of pride myself on the fact that I believe that I won't ever totally cut a player out of my life, and that you know, if I'm if I'm paying sort of Matt Dominguez prices next year for him, 
and I just have to pay a dollar or two in AL labor, and he could maybe be my corner infielder with a little bit of upside, you know, hey, I might do that. Even as, even though he totally, like, almost single-handedly sunk my AL labor team this year. You know, Matt Dominguez is actually quite the comparison. They are extremely similar players, except Moustakis is a little bit more fly ball heavy. Other than that, they're, like mirror images of each other. They hit way too many pop-ups. They don't walk, but they make good contact. Yeah, and I and I was actually pretty happy with Matt Dominguez as, as my dollar player um, in corner outfield, corner infield in that same team. I, that's what I, that was my corner infielder, you know, and I, you know, I was happy with that. But I, I am, uh, I, I think I will create a column, um, in my projections and my, you know, whatever spreadsheet I end up using for, uh, you know, there might be two separate columns. I'm, I haven't really figured it out, but fly ball percentage, the guys that are over um, 40%, uh, they, you know, they're actually maybe over like 44%. Those guys, I think I want to have a little asterisk there because, I mean, it's Brandon Moss, Dan Ugla. This year is Brandon Moss, Dan Ugla, Chris Carter. Chris Davis, Cespedes, Smoke, um, Seager, Longoria, Mustakis, Weeders. I mean, there's a lot of bad batting averages there. Um, and uh, it makes me a little bit worried about those players for batting average going forward. I mean, we know Chris Carter is terrible. Dan Ugly hit 190. I think Brandon Moss is a true talent, like sort of 230 type hitter. Um, you know, makes me worry about Cespedes. So I think I am going to put some sort of marker in for the extreme fly ball guys, and um, and I and I am going to put a marker in for uh, sort of spray spray hitters, you know, oppo hitters with power versus, you know, th- that's something we're working on too. But so I think Mustakis is the worst of both worlds. He's a pull hitter and he hits it straight in the air. How does a guy who hit 36 home runs through two levels of the minor leagues in 2010? Has posted isolated sluggings over 200. He can't, you know, he was a big time prospect when he came up. He was supposed to be a big power hitter. How does this guy post a 6.9 percent home run per fly ball ratio? I don't understand. I mean, on some level, the home park, you know, changed a little bit over those years. So, you know. Yeah. Okay. Let's look at his away number. He posted a ooh a 7.9 percent home run per fly away versus a 5.8. <laughs> I see how that home park just completely... How about career him. away and home? I mean, he's only had like two seasons. Right. <laughs> but I'm, I'm bringing it up. His career home and away is almost essentially the same, home over fly, 7.1 oh, and 7.3. Oh, so boy. no excuse, right. Michael Moustakis. No excuse. For just sucking. Yeah. Just sucking the life well, out of my AL labor team. I so blame you. What about this theory? So, clearly, with all of his pop-ups, all of his fly balls, maybe his swing plane is just awful, and he simply gets under the ball too often, and so even even if it's considered a fly ball and not a pop-up, it's still more pop-up-y than other fly balls, and so just based on his swing plane, he's just not making good contact with the ball and it's just, you know, lazy fly balls to the outfielders, that's killing his average distance and that's killing his home run power because he's just not, you know, squaring up on the ball often enough. So he just needs a complete overhaul of his swing. Yeah. 
yeah, I mean, you know, players with his line drive rate um, have trouble with batting average, even if they make contact. And uh, I think he does need to focus a little bit on line drive rate. And I think if, you know, he did he did do a little bit better um, in the uh, in the second half. Um, and I'm looking now. I'm trying to look now at his line drive rate over the season because I think that, you know, he had a couple different um, hitting coaches over the over the season. I mean, you know, uh, George Brett came in for a day, and um, you know, so I wanted to look at his season graph for line drive rate. And uh, let's see here. Oh, daily graphs. That's not. It, uh, uh, it did. It did sit in the low 20% range from June on through the rest of the season. So basically his line drive rate was killed by a low April and a 9% May. After that, he was good. Yeah, yeah, it got it got better. So there's some hope there, I guess. And also if you look at his ground ball and fly ball rates, there was a major change in, in the middle of the season. I mean, he was crazy, crazy, crazy fly ball. And then he brought that back into the fold a little bit and, and even out um, in the second half. So uh, and then you, you can just like watch his line drive rate sort of, you know, creep up as his fly ball rate went down. So there's there's some hope there. There's a little bit of hope there. Um, and it's kind of crazy. Just look at his ground ball, fly ball, line drive daily chart. It's just it's it's uh, kind of remarkable almost. I mean, last in, in 2012, it was steady all season. And then this year, he it looks like he had three hitting coaches. You can actually see three different hitting coaches in his stats. <laughs> yeah, it's low, then high, then low. If uh, The fly ball rate, all of them were like, yeah. I mean, they weren't consistent all season long at all. Yeah. Oh, actually, I'm looking from 2011 to 2013. All right, now I'm looking at just 2013. Wow. Yeah. That's all over the place. Yeah, the fly ball up over 60%, way back down to above 30%, then back up again above 40%. So yeah, it was all over. it was it was a sign of a hitter who's like, "All right, I suck. What the heck am I supposed to do?" Well, <laughs> I swing to make things better. He did get better in the second half. And I mean, bottom line, I'm not giving up on him. I think I've lost interest in 12 team mixed leagues, but yeah. AL only league I will guarantee that he's going to be cheap, and given his price, I think that he'll be worth the cost just based on the potential upside. Because you, you can't completely throw out his pedigree, his minor league history. He clearly has power. He just needs to do something with that swing, and and it's happened. I mean, you could alter a swing, and I think there's still a 25 to 30 home run bat in there. Yeah, you could easily pay two, three, four, five dollars in an AL only league next year and get a guy. Who hits 260 with 25 homers? Yeah, I mean, there's no that, downside at that price. Yeah, that's that, and then you then that's like sort of a, a game winning. That's that's at least a position winning kind of move where you you know you fill your corner infield slot with a guy for two bucks that that gives you ten bucks or fifteen bucks or whatever. So um, I think that's uh, I think he's I'm not gonna I'm gonna try my hardest not to hate him. <laughs> I think Mr. Moustakis will truly appreciate that and will allow you to interview him now. Oh, yeah. Actually, that's he not would even... make a great interview. He would. <laughs> I mean, you have to be nice about things, but I think it would be very interesting to talk about his batted ball profile 
And if he's yeah, trying... unfortunately, he doesn't think about things like this. <laughs> How do you know this? Have you spoken to him? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that yeah. is very unfortunate because his coaches need to discuss that with him and his swing because clearly it's not working. He's, he was very rude to me, and he, he does not um... – he does not think about things this way. Well, then let's wish as little success as possible for. No, no, no. I mean, hey, this is what I'm saying. I, I have, I have so many reasons to dislike this guy, <laughs> and um, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna try my hardest not to. And maybe I'll even own him in AL Labor next year, and I'll laugh about it. <laughs> All right, let's move along to another bold prediction that I made in the preseason, and that is that. Josh Rutledge was going to be demoted to AAA by the end of May. And that's exactly what happened. But Rutledge was really, I mean, I was actually kind of intrigued by some of his skill improvements. He was really just killed by a low Babbitt. So, I mean, he's not going to be guaranteed a starting job next year. He's probably going to battle in spring training with DJ LeMahieu, which is pretty crazy to say. But if he does open the season as their starting second baseman, are you getting back on the train? Would you consider him a sleeper and, and think he's due for a nice little rebound? I mean, he stole 12 bases without getting caught once, which is pretty good. And, you know, for his major league career now, he's stolen 19 without getting caught once. So there's something there in terms of at least knowing when to take off and, uh, and having the speed to, to show that. He has a, a career, he has a major league average um, isolated slugging percentage over 600 plate appearances for his career. So you were definitely talking about a guy who can go 15 15 um, without. You know, without pushing the projections very hard. So, any guy who can go 15-15 at second base is interesting to me. I just thought he would strike out less, and I thought that if he struck out 14-15 percent of the time, that he would put so many balls into play that eventually his his ball his batting average on balls in play would would um, regress. You know, the more you put the balls in put in play, the more likely are you are to regress to the mean. Um, so I, I feel like. I thought his strikeout rate would be lower, and um, it wasn't necessarily. You know, he's basically a league average strikeout guy this year. And then if you, you put league average strikeout rate in with a bad walk rate with bad defense, that's that's how you end up in the minor leagues again. Yeah, well, we have basically a full season of performance and stats for Rutledge now, 562 at-bats. And what he's done over that time doesn't look all that different than what Ian Kinsler did this year, 15 home runs, 19 steals, 82 runs, 56 RBIs, 254. That's basically a poor man, slightly worse than Ian Kinsler this year, and that definitely has value, even in 12-team mixed leagues. Yeah, it's just that um, I think that one of the things that I thought would uh, would help Rutledge is that he would excel in the types of things that um, the old school crowd might might notice, and so they'd be like, "Oh, you know, he, look at this guy. He's got a little power. He's got a little speed. I like him. He's got spunk, you know." And then I thought that DJ in Lemay- that exact voice, in that voice, <laughs> this kid's got spunk. Um, yeah, that's kind of gross, actually. He's got a, he, he's got the good face. Yeah, and I thought that Lemayhew. Uh, I can't believe he stole 18 bases. I thought Lemayhew would he he had two home runs. I thought he would have like four stolen bases. And I thought he'd hit like 275, and it would just be this completely blah line that even though he plays really good defense, I thought, you know, no, no old school manager would, you know, want to keep that around. Uh, but, you know, LeMahieu stole 18 bases. He hit 280 instead of 275, and he played his, uh, his normal good defense, and he just 
was good enough to to prove that he was better than Rutledge. So, but you know, I, I will say that these things are all subject to change. I think they still are because I think Lemayhu could easily go into spring next year, hit 270 without any power, you know, and Rutledge, you know, is on fire through the spring, um, you know, with a nice Babbitt or something, and and takes the job back. Yeah, I, I do like Rutledge if he gets the job, but I'd feel more comfortable if LeMahieu was completely out of the picture and wasn't even carried on their opening day roster because as we saw what happened this year, I would just be nervous that any two-week slump by Rutledge and all of a sudden LeMahieu is stealing playing time away. And I, and so I wouldn't re- want to rely on Rutledge with LeMahieu around and that continued threat of losing his playing time. Yeah, and Rutledge doesn't have the bat to, to switch over to first and... Yeah, I mean, it, it's obviously uh, he's he's in the most darkest crowd for me. I mean, I didn't I didn't invest super heavily in Rutledge, but I did consider him a decent sleeper, and I did own him a couple times. Um, I think he, I'm going to put him in the same place, NL only. Uh, if there's a great spring, um, maybe final couple picks. Um, if there's a great spring and they trade or cut or demote Lemayhu, then you know then he creeps up a little bit further. Yeah, and if that happens where they get rid of LeMahieu and Rutledge is pretty much guaranteed second base full-time, then I'm thinking Rutledge is once again a sleeper in 12-team mixed leagues. And now that he has the AAA experience, I'm not going to make some pessimistic ball prediction anymore. Rather, I might make an optimistic one and I'm going to really like him and think he might have some nice sleeper value in 12-team mixers. Yeah, it's funny. A, a couple of my bold predictions that, that, that happened to me I, I one of my bold predictions is that Zach Greinke would be mostly healthy this year, and I actually gave myself a point on that because I don't count, you know, uh, fights, you know, fight teams. Yeah. <laughs> Although maybe I should. I mean, they are pitchers, and things happen. But um, uh, I think I would go back on that now, considering his his sort of switch from the slider to the cutter. I would say, I think that uh, Zach Greinke is going to be hurt next year, um, and. Um, you know what was it? I think I might jump on the uh, back on the Mustakas. Not back on the Mustak. I can't do that. <laughs> scratch that. Yeah, scratch that one. Uh, but um, there was—I forget what it is now. But there was definitely another uh, prediction where I was like, you know what? I'm going to predict like the opposite next year. <laughs> all right. Well, maybe next show you'll expound upon that because I think that we're all eager to hear. Wait, you do a complete one. Hold on, hold on. I can do it. It's I had to, you know, stupid internet load, load, load. Um, um, which one was it actually? Oh, Anthony Rizzo will outproduce Adrian Gonzalez. I I missed on that one, but I think I will re up on that one next year. Oh, so that's not a one eighty. That's just doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah, I'm just going to do it again. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm a but I lost, board. so it's kind of, you know, it seems silly, but I might do it again. Yeah, I'm completely on board with Rizzo. I think next year he'll definitely be undervalued and a great profit potential player, and he'll probably find his way onto many sleeper lists as well, so it's going to up his price. But we'll talk about Rizzo uh, later on in the offseason when we get to talking about first base. So that's going to wrap it up today. So join us again on Thursday for more fantasy fun on The Sleeper and the Bust. For Eno Saris, I'm Mike Podhorser. Thanks, as always, for tuning in.